Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. We're going to go right into John chapter 20. Last week we talked about who was in control. And so this is a little bit of a continuation. This really is some of my favorite passages. I realized that we went through Easter and I talked all about the crucifixion. In a way we talked about the resurrection, but not really. In John chapter 20, it deals with the resurrection and then it closes out chapter 20 with Christ appearing specifically to Thomas and letting Thomas know, I'm alive. I've come again. You can trust me. But look at verse 30 and 31, John 20. I get crying already, and I hope I don't cry all through this message. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What a great way to close the book. Because you've come to the resurrection of Christ. You've come to him showing himself to the disciples, all of, from Mary to all of the disciples, even taking time with Thomas. And then he would say, but these things are written that you may believe. So we're at this great spiritual plane. And wouldn't it be wonderful to close the Gospel of John right at that place and then open into Acts where you have the Holy Spirit coming and those apostles, the disciples preaching the Gospel and thousands coming to Christ. So we're at this great pinnacle in John chapter 20. And then let me tell you, it doesn't end in verse 31. Then we come to a thud. I don't know how to say it any better. Chapter 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Hold it right there. Why did I say we've come to a thud? Because all of a sudden now something else is going to happen. We've come from a great pinnacle, and now we're going to drop off. The Gospel of John provides evidence of the deity, the Messiahship of Jesus. It's evidence that will lead you to eternal life. It's that evidence and that proof of who Christ is. It's the high point. And I sometimes think in my humanity, I would have thought, boy, we ought to end with chapter 20. But this is so important. This is so important for you and for me. Because now, as we see this, Jesus is showing himself again to the disciples. And this is the Sea of Galilee, by the way. Peter, in his life, so many times could have just completely disqualified himself. So now we have seven of the 11 apostles, Simon Peter, Thomas, who's just been dealt with in chapter 20, where Christ showed himself and had Thomas come and, and reach into his hands and feel the pierced hands and feet and side. Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the two sons of Zebedee, and two others, Philip and Andrew. 
Why do I say this? Because all of these disciples were in the fishing business before. They had all been fishermen. So seven out of the 12, seven out of now 11. And what does Simon Peter say? Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, this is the other six, I am going fishing. Think about they've seen the Lord twice before. The Lord had told them, go back to the mount, wait for me in Galilee, and I'm going to give you the instructions. Why does Peter say this? There's something that's really final in his statement. Christ in Matthew chapter 28 had told them, go to Galilee to that mountain that I'll tell you and, and wait for my instructions. They'd seen the Lord, but now Peter says, I am going fishing. Sometimes when the Lord tells us to do something and we get caught up in ourselves, it's really kind of predictable and impulsive of Peter. Peter goes back to his former career. He's a leader, and just like a whole bunch of baby ducklings, the others just follow right along. Okay, well, if you're going fishing, we're going fishing. Now, this is not recreational fishing. This is not, you're going to see that, this is not just getting the pole and taking an afternoon. He's going back. He's had enough of all of this. Why does Peter say that? I'm going back fishing. Hasn't he seen the risen Christ? Why is he going to go back? It's pretty simple. I think because he has absolutely no confidence in himself. Her theology there. I think he has no confidence in himself. They said to him, verse 3, we're going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. This is not just a little dinghy. This is not a rowboat. There's seven in the boat. But when the morning had come, this is verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They didn't know that who this was, but there's Jesus. Now this is a great vessel. This is one of those vessels... And Peter, not having any confidence in himself because he's proven that he's a failure, and one minute he could be serving the Lord, and the next minute serving the devil. He could say, I'll follow you even to the death. And then when it came to that place where insignificant people in the dark question him, and he denies the Lord three times. He would deny him, deny him, irrelevant people. He had overestimated his own wisdom he seemed to be sometimes pompous in his ways. He bragged about his strengths, and he underestimated the power of temptation. He openly declared that he could handle any threat that would come, and he would never waver in his loyalty to Jesus. But, oh, that foolish betrayal. That's the part of the story. It's not a lot different than Judas Iscariot, full of self-doubt. There's a sense of overwhelming weakness he has a history of failure. He is lacking to trust in himself. And I think in his own inadequacy, he says, I can't do this. I'm going to go fishing. And everybody else says, yeah, you're right. Let's all go. I can't do this work. I can fish. Verse 4 and 5, notice what Jesus, how Jesus so lovingly handles this. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. They don't know that it's Jesus. 
And literally it says, you do not have any fish, do you? And maybe some translations give it that way. You do not have any fish, do you? That's what Jesus asks. That's a little irritating, isn't it? Have you ever been at work all day, got nothing accomplished, and here's Jesus on the seashore. You don't have any fish, do you? Even for Jesus. They didn't really have to punctuate that. And they said no. Now, this wasn't the first time that this had happened. This had happened earlier in Luke chapter 5. Remember the story? You remember on that occasion when Peter realized that it was the Lord? And what was his response? He says, Lord, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. And here he is again, that same sinful man in the presence of the very same Son of God. And when the Lord says... You don't have any fish, do you? He was saying, you can't catch fish anymore. You're not catching any more fish. Because remember, we talked about last week, who's in control? I want you to see there's someone in complete control here. Someone in complete charge. Why? Why could these men not go back fishing? Why couldn't they catch fish? Because Christ had called them to be fishers of men. Christ had called them to a higher calling. He had called them to do something else. And there were no fish in the area when the Lord said, try the right side of the boat. Oh, let's, let's read on. I'll get to preaching here in a little bit. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. Now, do you think these fishermen that knew, they knew how to fish. And like I said, these weren't just recreational fishermen. They have the net. There are seven of them. It's a good sized boat. It'll hold 153 large fish. So this is a big fishing boat, may have been Peter's own boat. And I wonder if they would have thought, are you crazy? Are you crazy? You mean to think that we would stay in one area, only cast the net on one side all, all night long? But said, Jesus said, cast it out on the right side. He's in control. He knows exactly. And he's led that event. He has taken care of this. So they cast their net on the right side of the boat. And Christ had told them, you're going to find a catch there. Verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some there. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter had heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. You see, this is not just a coincidence. It's not just a coincidence that some fish had come by. Christ is in complete control. And now, by the authority of his voice, they didn't know originally who it was that told them, cast the net on the other side, but just the authority of his voice. They obeyed. And then John, that disciple whom Jesus loved, <laughs> we talked about that last week. That's the way he wanted to be known. I'm just loved by God. I'm just loved by the Lord Jesus. And so as he's inspired to write these words, he doesn't put his name. He just wants you to know that you're loved just like he was, that you're loved of the Lord Jesus just like he was. And so he tells Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter, who has been busy working, that's why they would have taken off the outer cloaks, just left their loincloths, would have just left their basic clothing on. 
He jumps into the water. But look what verse 8 says. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, drawing the net with fish. So now they're about 100 yards. 200 cubits is about 300 feet or 100 yards. So they're out about the length of a football field. They've had a catch. John recognizes, and by the way, this is the last, the final miracle in the Gospel of John. The first, you remember, was in the marriage supper at Canaan of Galilee. And now this is the last miracle. Christ is risen. He's in complete control. He's brought the fish. So many and while the other disciples are coming in the little boat, it was big enough to hold all of them and not far from land, about 100 yards, dragging that net full of fish. They couldn't get it into the boat. So they're working like crazy to get the fish to the shore. And finally they go to the land. And what does it say in verse 9? Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Christ wasn't asking them, when he said, do you have any fish? He's not asking them because he's already got everything that he needs. He doesn't need what they're doing. He already had it prepared. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Now he's beginning to show himself that little charcoal fire already, the fish laid on it. And Jesus says, bring that number of fish. And by the way, it says, verse 11, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. There's that part of that miracle. Not only the fish, but the net hadn't broken. So many large fish that something is set aside. Why is it named 153? Because, you know, the scripture is exact. They wanted us to know that this isn't just an arbitrary amount. Somebody took the time. Somebody counted them. The word of God is true and is trustable, verifiable. That's the word I'm looking for. It is verifiable. You can trust it. They're just about 100 yards out, and there's so many fish there that 153, the net was not torn. What a, a massive catch without tearing the net. Now, Peter and the others know they cannot fish anymore. That's the lesson. You can't fish. I control the fish. You can't fish for fish when Christ has called you to be fishers of men. And I believe that he's called us to be fishers of men today. And then the Lord said and does an amazing thing because he is restoring these men. In verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. They knew now, this is the third time that Jesus has manifested himself after he's been raised from the dead. And I don't know what some of the conversations were like. In my mind, I can imagine they would have been saying, Lord, we're so sorry. We're sorry that we left you. We are so sorry for leaning on our own understanding and trusting ourselves. I just can imagine what that conversation would have been like. But the Lord begins to restore. They've all been defecting. They might have thought how weak they are, how far short. You might have thought after three years of Christ spending time day by day with these men, they've seen his death, they've seen his resurrection. Now they've seen him the third time. 
I would wonder if the Lord isn't just ready to say, let's start all over. How many times did the Lord tell Moses, get out of the way, Moses. I'm going to start all over with Israel. I'm going to just wipe them away. We're bringing in a whole new lot. And I wonder why it is that he does not just say, let's get rid of these men. I'm going to start over. I'm going to make a whole new group. It's because we as humans, as clay vessels, we're marred. We're broken. We're destroyed. But he uses us. He uses you and me in our frailty, in our brokenness. He uses that. And now Jesus begins to disciple a disciple. And I hope that you've been part of a discipleship before. How does Jesus disciple a disciple? How does he restore someone who has been a disobedient disciple? How does Jesus do biblical counseling? How is he going to shepherd these wayward sheep? He's a pastor. How does he pastor them? How does he lead them to obedience? How does he lead them to growing in their sanctification? How does he make them useful again? I would think this is a long, complex process. I would think that it's going to take a long time. But Jesus asked three questions. I should say he asked one question three times. One question, and he gets right to the heart. Often we say, well, we need to believe in the Lord, and we need to serve the Lord, and you need to witness for the Lord. And lately I've heard a lot of people say, oh, I just need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not here, but and it's often described, and I'm afraid that some of transcendental meditation came into some of our churches, and we think, well, if I just sit here and I open my mind and I'm just not thinking about anything, then the Holy Spirit's going to fill me. Sometimes I hear the song, Holy Spirit, fall fresh on me. So unscriptural. That's an unscriptural song. Because when you're born again, you get all of the Holy Spirit you're going to get. Now, we got to get out of the way to allow him, but he's not falling fresh on you day by day. He's there. He's alive within you. That puts it into a passive mode of letting something happen. And we need to recognize that we are weak, that we need the Lord. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, let me tell you how to be spirit-filled. How to be sure that you're walking in the glory of God. And it says in chapter 2 Corinthians 3, 18, As you gaze at His glory, you're changed into the image by the Holy Spirit. We are changed into His image by the Holy Spirit. That's not passive. That's an aggressive action. We begin to realize that, you know, by my growth... By my growth, my life, my work, my sanctification, it's not dependent on being in a vacuum and letting the Holy Spirit fill it. It is the pursuit of the knowledge of the glory of God. It's because I'm going to go after knowing Christ. There's only one way to do that. Get to know Christ. Read the Gospels. Learn through the pages of the New Testament to gaze at the glory of Christ. I love that the Apostle Paul, and I thought about this verse for years, and I ponder on it. When I meditate, this is where I go. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. You want to be Holy Spirit filled? Let me tell you, gaze at Jesus. Start looking at Jesus. Start investigating in his life. And we're going to see something about that because as we look at the simplicity of how the Lord tries to restore these men, this critical disciple, this bunch that is going to be so used in the early church, he asked them one question, do you love me? Have you seen enough? Have you heard enough to love me? Well, that's why Jesus says, verse 15, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? I love it because when Peter gets back to his old self, when Peter gets back to his old man, Jesus says, Simon, he's not calling him Peter. Simon, hmm, there's a problem here. You're your old self. You're your old man. I can't tell you how many men that I've known that they went by nicknames and everything in their life of crime. And when they came to Christ, they took on a new name, a new nature. They're different. Well, Simon's acting like his old man, not like the new Peter that we're going to see in the book of Acts. That's what he's asking. Do you love me? I don't know what you need in order to grow in Christ. I don't know if you understand how the Lord is setting us aside, but the clear word of Scripture is that our sanctification, our growth in Christ, is directly related to your knowledge of Christ in all of His glory. The more that you know Christ, it's not something that's passive. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what we're striving for. That's what Jesus is going to bring Peter to to bring him to that place where the word of Christ dwells in him richly. And look at that question. Do you love me? Maybe you knew, and I didn't know for a long time till my late teen years, that I needed to trust Christ as Savior. But maybe you knew you needed to believe him, to serve him, to witness for him, to think about now loving him. What are the great commandments of the scripture in, in the Old Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. That's Deuteronomy 6. Matthew 22, Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the first and the greatest commandment. And God has come to us in Christ. So that applies to Christ. He's come to us that if you want to really serve, if you want to really grow, get to know Christ. What does God want from you? on behalf of Christ. He wants you to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the Christian life. It's all tied to all of our facilities loving the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, anybody who doesn't love the Lord, the word is, is anathema, is doomed, it's damned. If you are damned for not loving the Lord, the opposite of that is being given eternal life, which is defined as our loving the Lord. So here is the motive for your growth. Here's the motive for your being set aside and working for the Lord. The motive for all of your service is very simple. Jesus asked, do you love me? Do you love me? Let's look at this conversation. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, getting right to the heart, do you love me more than these? What is that? Is he saying, do you love me more than these other disciples? Do you love me more than these other six? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Remember the setting. There was a boat. There was the net, the nets, the anchors, who knows what all. 
that went with all of the fishing industry. Do you love me more than your old life? Do you love me more than your occupation? Do you love me more than these? That's what Jesus is saying. Not these disciples. Do you love me more than life? Do you love me more than what you always depended on? That's asking a question that's suitable for us. Do you love me more than all of the stuff? All that stuff that makes up your life. It's like when Christ said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. You've got to let go of everything that made up your life. And here he uses the word agapeo. He said to him, because he asked him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you have the highest, greatest love for me? The most noble love for me? Do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than anything in the world? You know, in Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you love your own life, the life that you've created for yourself more than you love the Lord, you're not worthy of me. He's saying, do you love me enough to deny yourself? I think Peter must have been very sorrowful here because in verse 15, he says, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he changed the word. He didn't use the word agapeo, that highest, noblest love of will. He drops it down a notch. He said, I love you. I have warm affection. It's like saying, I like you a lot. I like you a lot. Why did he do that? Because he's exposed. Christ has shown who he was. He's guilty. He's broken. He's humbled. He would have to be a fool to say, I love you with the highest kind of love, the most noble love. He couldn't say that. But he does say, Lord, you know, you know that I like you a lot. Now, this comes back to God's omniscience, God's knowing everything. Christ knew. That's what Peter is saying. Sometimes it might be sad in our lives when we have to rely on God's omniscience when it's not evident in our life that we love him. That's what Peter's saying. My life isn't evident that I've loved you, but you have all knowledge. You know everything. I have to call on your omniscience. You know that I have deep affection for you. That moment was a moment of blessing. I think it's a moment, and it's a blessing when the Lord knows everything, and he knows that we love him, even when it's not obvious by our lives. So we could say it another way. I'm glad to say that the Lord knows the things I desperately want him to know. And that's a blessing. I'm okay if he knows the things I really don't want him to know, but I need him to know how much I love him. You ever feel like that? Because sometimes it's not obvious in our lives. He knows I love him truly, but I don't love him as I should. My love isn't everything it should be, but it's real. That's what Peter is saying. This is amazing because the Lord says to him, Basque my lambs. What does that mean? Shepherd my lambs, tend them, take care of them, feed them. Feed my lambs, watch over them, and care in such a way. This is Peter's ordination, if you would. Now, I've been to lots of ordinations. I think Peter would not have passed the ordination questions, because here in all of this, Peter has just denied Christ. He's just been impulsive. He's been disobedient. And at times when Peter stands up, sometimes he speaks great truths. Sometimes he speaks for the devil. 
And Christ says, say, get behind me, Satan. And sometimes he says, Lord, I'll fight for you. And then he runs away and he denies Christ and he denies Christ. He's a broken man. But Jesus says, you're accepted. After all those ridiculous things Peter had done, here's another evidence. He puts him right back in the work. Feed my lambs. Whose do they belong to? Look at the pronoun. They're mine. I'm turning them over to you, Peter. Far less perfect love. The Lord deserves, he deserves such greater. He, he desires the greatest love. But love, lower in quality than the Lord receives from all of those who are around him, except for those in heaven. Peter's restored to the ministry with a love that isn't even visible to anyone except the Lord in his omniscience. Feed my lambs, my little ones, my tender, my weak, those that are prone to wander, those that are prone to stray. I'm putting them all in your hands. Now remember last week we looked at John chapter 17 when Christ went to the Father in his high priestly prayer and we looked at how he said, Father, I'm going to the cross and praying. He says, Father, I've guarded them now as I'm going to the cross. I'm giving them for you to keep. Because when he couldn't take care of them, he turned them over to the Father and nothing could ever take us as those disciples out of the Father's hand. But here's the wonder of wonder. Now he turns them over to Peter, my little lambs, not to Peter only. And he said to him the second time, verse 16, he said to him the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you agapeo? Simon Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I like you a lot. And he says, okay, shepherd my sheep, tend them, take care of them, watch over them, meet their needs. I want you to watch over to make sure that they're not straying. And Peter is graved because he was saying, I have a really strong affection. But if Christ is saying, if you really have a strong affection for me, and that really hurts, that really probes Peter's heart, this is spiritual biopsy. It opens Peter's soul because Peter was grieved. And when he said to him the third time, Simon Peter, Simon son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you have strong affection for me? Now he's even questioning his first words. He's denied the Lord three times. And it wasn't because it was the third time, it was because now the Lord questioned even the love that he thought he could get by with. He thought he could get just by with this great affection, but not the highest love. And again, Peter cries out to Christ's omniscience. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And so in this, we see who Christ is. Because we might be kind of like that man of Isaiah chapter 6. Remember Isaiah? Isaiah sees God high and lifted up, and he's the only one in the vision. He sees Christ. He sees God high and lifted up in the temple. And Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm a, I am a man of unclean lips. And there, following that vision, the Lord asks the question, who will go for me? And Isaiah tends to say, you don't want me. I'm a man of unclean lips. But then in the vision, he asks, who will go? There's nobody there but Isaiah. This isn't a rhetorical question. He said, here am I. Here am I, Lord, send me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Maybe he's asking the question, could you send me? 
the Lord says, you are my man. Isn't always clay pots? Isn't it always flawed and failed pots? These vessels and all he asked of us out of all of his omniscience, all of his knowing of who you are. He knows our love isn't perfect, but he knows it's real. I didn't know what it was to love the Lord in my early years. And I do know what it is to fall. I'm a weak guy. I'm struggling, failing, and sometimes maybe I dwell in the midst, but I learned something that's crucial, is that when we fail in our life, it's because we don't love the Lord correctly. When we elevate Christ, our love increases. Now, this love has a cost. Verse 18, he says, and here's the cost. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. What is he saying? What is Christ telling him? I think this is great news. Now, Peter's being told, when you're old, others are going to take care of you. But when you stretch out your hands, remember how Christ was stretched on the cross? This is speaking of Peter's death. That's what the scripture says. He was telling him by what death he was going to glorify God. All of Peter's denying, all of Peter's falling down. And now Christ is saying, it's not going to happen again. You're going to be faithful to the death. You're going to be faithful even though you will be crucified. Even though you're going to die. Now we might think, oh no, you mean crucifixion's right around the corner? No, Peter's thinking, wow, I don't fall down again. I don't blow it again. I don't deny the Lord again. And remember, history tells us that he was crucified, but Peter says, I'm not even worthy to be crucified like Christ crucified me upside down after he had just watched his wife being crucified. And he did not deny the Lord this time. He was going to be executed. He was going to be a martyr. Welcome back to the ministry, Peter. Remember what I told you? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Well, they're going to hate you. They're going to hate all that you do. Maybe you think, well, give the guy a break. But on the day of Pentecost, when the fullness of the Holy Spirit had come, the dynamite right down to being crucified, he knew that, okay, if they crucify me, it's all right because I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fail. I'm not falling down again. He had no confidence in himself. There was no history of faithfulness, let me put it that way. He had been so unfaithful, and in the face of danger, he was a disaster. And now, he'd been promised by the all-knowing Lord, you're going to be faithful. In Luke 14, 26, if any man comes to me and doesn't hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you love me? Do you love me enough to deny yourself? Do you love me enough to take up a cross, if that's what I ask you? Do you love me that much? Well, there's one more component, because he says, follow me, follow me. In all of that, the Lord says, you follow me. That's what he's calling us in our brokenness. Peter is still a mess, because look, look at the next verse. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, 
who also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Peter, don't you get it? Christ has just restored you, and what does he do? Well, what about John? And I've got to tell you, I think the Lord is a little exasperated at, at Peter, because look at what Jesus says to him. But Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Did you ever have your kids get you so exasperated that you just said, when they've said, why? Why do I have to clean my room? Why? Why? Because I said so. <laughs> Maybe that's her translation, but that's what Jesus is saying here. What is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. You follow me. Nobody else comes. You follow me. You feed my sheep. Do you love me? You got to love Peter. <laughs> and of course, Jesus says, if I want him to remain till I come again, what is that? What is that to you? Such sarcasm there. And of course, then the story went out that John wasn't going to die until Christ came. And all of that, Jesus is saying, it's irrelevant. It's just completely irrelevant. This is so emphatic. You follow me, forget everyone else, deny yourself, face death, follow me. Now, John did die 30 years after Peter, after the Isle of Patmos, 30 years after Peter, after Paul, they were martyred. And you know, in John, in the first 11 chapters, he walked with Peter, and Peter was the spokesman. But now, Peter is turned over, and John begins to be such a great witness for Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, John doesn't really say much in the book of Acts, but he wrote the gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. The Lord used John <laughs> in tremendous ways. Peter had learned his lesson. I love the end of Ephesians. It says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. That's not the elevation of love, that's the nature of love. It's a real love. It's incorruptible. If you love me, do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Are you willing to die for me? Is that the plan? Live obediently. That is the plan that we're going to be loving and following him. First Peter chapter 5, Peter really sums it up. He sums it up. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God who is among you. What's he doing? He is repeating exactly what Jesus had said to him three times. Exercise oversight, not by compassion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness yet not lording it over as allotted to your charge, but providing as an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter has gone from being a disciple to becoming our teacher. Peter has moved in his life. He was broken. We're all broken vessels. 
We've all fallen short, and none of us could say, boy, I know I could do it. You know, I've seen hundreds of men come to Christ, and I'll tell you how it is. It's by the power of the Word of God. And all we need to do is be that spokesman. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let that be which works in your life, in your heart. Does Jesus care? He cares. He cares for you. He loves you beyond all that you could ask of me. We invite you to come, whatever your need might be. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions or perhaps you have questions of a different topic, let us know. Our information is given on the website or you can reach us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Just as he said